You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. First, our conversation, which I just mentioned with Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis. She's with us right now from Capitol Hill on what is an important day for her and for the body as lawmakers get back together and, as I mentioned, seek progress on a border deal. And, Congresswoman, we thank you for joining here. It looks like your bill... H.R. 5283 is going to get a vote right after we talk here today. The Protecting Our Communities from Failure to Secure the Border Act is what it's called here. Of course, the migrant crisis in New York is not lost on us, Congresswoman. How would it change that? Well, look, obviously the crisis has gotten out of control and uh, the president unfortunately refuses to undo his executive orders. And uh, President, I mean, I'm sorry, Sec- uh, Senator Schumer refuses to bring our Border Security Act, which passed in May, to the floor for a vote uh, that would end this crisis by reverting back to the policies of the previous administration that were working to stem the flow. So what I'm trying to simply do here is to prohibit federal funds uh, from now being used to allow for our national parks to be turned into encampment. Those listening from New York City understand that Floyd Bennett Field, which was a park enjoyed by over 100,000 New Yorkers uh, annually, has now been uh, made a a migrant encampment for roughly two to 3,000 individuals. Um, So it's, it's number one, inappropriate. It's wrong to take these public spaces from our citizens. And number two, it's just simply unsustainable. Look what is happening in New York right now with our mayor saying they need to do slash across the board cuts, billions of dollars that they're spending on this migrant crisis that was self-made, by the way, because of the policies of the president and then the misinterpretation of the right to shelter law by our mayor. Um, So those two things have created this mess. We need to just stop it. People, we are a welcoming nation. We are a welcoming city. I'm the daughter of immigrants myself, but people have to follow the proper process. And the proper process, by the way, for asylum is you apply from the next safe country. We have people from over 120 countries claiming asylum at our border when we're only bordered by two countries. So people are abusing the system, not to mention that 50% of those cases are denied in court, which means people are utilizing this to gain access to our country, but they don't even have legitimate claims and they're hurting all the people that are in the system waiting, but Mm -hmm. followed the rules and done everything right. Well, I want to definitely talk to you about asylum law. There are a couple of very specific questions I have for you, Congresswoman. Mm -hmm. It's not lost on me, though, that you mentioned the Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, on on the historic registry. We understand that a lot of migrants who have been sent there got on a bus and went right back to Manhattan because there was nothing there for their families. They didn't know how to get their kids to school. Do you have the votes to pass this bill? I do believe we have the votes and I do believe that it will pass with a bipartisan vote as it did uh, in the committee earlier um, this month or last month. Um, but what I'll say is this, you're right, and, and it's not safe for the migrants either, right? There's been significant flooding 
uh, on that property. It was really devastated during Hurricane Sandy, but even during a terrible rainstorm like we had a few weeks ago, uh, it had about it had you know a foot of water. Um, so it's not safe uh, for for anybody involved. And the reality is, the mayor just has to stop doing what he's doing, uh, and the president needs to take action to secure the border. And you mentioned you know comprehensive immigration reform. Yes. I mean, the Republicans certainly want border security, but we're willing to work with the Democrats on uh, more visas to make sure people can come and work legally. We do have an employment issue in our country where we we uh, have a worker shortage. Uh, this can be addressed. It, it could be a win-win if we do it right. But the bo bottom line is the process needs to be appropriate and legal. Okay, well, what's happening right now, who's benefiting? The drug cartels who are being paid thousands of dollars per person to smuggle these individuals into our southern border. We know from Doctors um, Without Borders, their recent report, hundreds of these individuals, and just Panama, by the way, in one, one month, they had been raped, women and children. So it's very dangerous, it's treacherous. People drown da daily, in, uh, e not daily, but regularly in yeah. Eagle Pass. Just this weekend, there were 14 God forbid people it's daily. drowned. Well, let's talk about specifics uh, here, Congresswoman, if we could. I'd like to ask you about asylum reform. I'd like to ask you about yeah. the parole system. These are things that our listeners are really kind of keying into now as the contours of a potential deal come together. We're hearing from Democrats in the Senate, Congresswoman, who say they are open to changing asylum law. Uh, what does that look like when we come back to it? Is it a toughening of standards for those uh, who can express credible fear, for instance, coming from other nations? What would a change in asylum law look like to you? Well, first of all, we need to add more uh, judges and asylum officers to actually hear these cases and determine at the border whether they are uh, legitimate cases or not. Because like I said, 50% of these cases are not legitimate. They get denied in court. And mean, mm -hmm. meanwhile, they're clogging up the system. The second thing we need to change is this last in, first out system that this administration has put in place, where somebody comes over the border, they're actually first to be heard uh, in court as opposed to uh, people have been waiting in line. That's really unfair to those of waiting years to be able to hear their cases and now they're being shoved further back in the line uh, because of this mass uh, migration from our border. Third of all, we need to enforce the law that says that um, you know you have to go to the next safe country. By those, okay. by that standard, um, only people from Mexico or Canada would be coming to the United States and that would certainly stem the flow. People would apply from mm -hmm. the next safe country and then they could wait uh, until their, their court date and then they can- Should that again, come with, with a stay proper, in Mexico policy as well? Well, if they, yes, it, well, it should if they are uh, coming from a third country. That's what I'm trying yes. to say. We can, we can actually address all of it where they don't need to stay in Mexico. They would stay in the next safe country. And that, that's really what the Remain in Mexico was all about. It wasn't just about having people from all these countries stay on the other side of the Mexican border. It was more about staying in the next safe country right. and applying from there and then waiting your turn in court. So I think if we do those things and add the border security provisions, we would really uh, shut this thing down and have a more controllable process. Remember, 10 years waiting period right now yes, to get a court right. date in New York City. So adding the judges and asylum officers is a big part of it, but we also have to stem the flow at mm -hmm. the border. And well, if as we I increase more visas... It mm -hmm. appears that there's some common ground on that, that that actually, you might in fact get Democrats and Republicans together. The sticking point appears to be the parole system, as it's called, which allows essentially the president to give humanitarian exceptions yeah. uh, to people from countries like we're seeing now, Venezuela, Cuba, and some others here. Tom Tillis yeah. said uh, on the Senate side, of course, a Republican, asylum reform is not enough to get us to the number that we need. So what happens to the parole system? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, my mother was a Cuban refugee, and so I relate uh, to those individuals in, from Cuba and Venezuela who are escaping socialist uh, policies, communist policies. Um, and uh, I, I think that we can, we can certainly, uh, th look, this is what happened though. The president issued this parole, but then he didn't enforce the border law. So the idea of the parole was so the people from Venezuela can apply via parole mm -hmm. instead of coming to the border. And that was supposed to shut down Venezuelans coming from the border, but that did not happen because he managed to keep the system, the, the borders open. So there's a limit to the number of parole, but then you were not enforcing the people who did not apply by parole, but then came to the border regardless, and that was the whole point of parole, was so they didn't come to the border. So you have to have enforcement, right? There's, any way you look at it, we need to have enforcement at the southern border. It's not just because the flow of migrants is unsustainable, it is because it is completely unsafe. We have uh, drug cartels who are pushing drugs over the border. They are setting up shop in New York City. Um, I just had a meeting today with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Very concerning. They, they intercepted 200,000 pounds of, uh, of, of, of fentanyl uh, or derivatives. And that is certainly um, something that we have to take seriously as we see well over 100,000 Americans dying from these drug overdoses. So it's, 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 there's a lot here that is a, a problem because of our open border. And what I would say is Republicans want to see border security. We will not give this administration more money to continue processing paperwork. We want, we want our CBP to actually do their job, and that means keeping the border secure so we know who is coming in and out. 1.7 million, million individuals, aside from the 6 million that have, had come in and applied for asylum, have come in undetected. That is what CBP estimates. We don't know who they are, where they are, what their intentions are, and that is very concerning to me as a New York City representative in a post-9-11 yeah. world. You are definitely passionate about this, Congresswoman, but I do want to ask you about another matter facing the Republican conference now, and that is, uh, of course, someone from your own delegation, George Santos, the congressman from New York who's facing, it appears, an expulsion vote at some point in the next 24 hours or so. Will Republicans expel George Santos from the House? Well, I, I, well, I think uh, the majority of Republicans will. Um, and I think it will be a bipartisan vote. And we, we need two-thirds of the body to vote to expel, mm -hmm. uh, for it to be successful. I will be voting to expel Mr. Santos. Um, look, we, we earlier this year referred it to the Ethics Committee. We've asked them to do their due diligence. They have. They issued 38 subpoenas. They talked to 40 different witnesses. They reviewed 170,000 pages of documents, and they were able to produce the evidence and determine that Mr. Santos did, in fact, use his uh, campaign donations for personal benefit, for, for Botox, for you know a porn website, for a purchase of luxury goods at Ferragamo and Hermes. And so we have to take action and remove him. Now, he will have his day in court as it relates to the criminal charges. Right. But in terms of being able to continue his service in Congress, we believe we have seen enough and that he does not merit to continue serving in this body and his constituents do deserve better. Is this a good message for Republicans right now? Is there an opportunity for you to send this message to voters to say that this is an act of responsibility and that we intend to keep that seat because Democrats think they're, they're going to flip that for you in New York? Well, I do think it is an act of responsibility. And look, the last time this happened, it was a Democrat and it shouldn't be politicized. I mean, you have to remove an individual's a bad apple like that. He lied his way to get to Congress and then he committed a uh, 
these, these horrific activities uh, and inappropriate use and illegal use, quite frankly, of uh, his donors' uh, money. And so we believe that uh, by removing this bad apple, uh, we will be better served as an institution, as a party, and his district will be able to elect someone who is not a fraud. And I do believe that Republicans can hold on to that seat. If you look what happened in Nassau County this year, uh, they, they have flipped everything. They have flipped their congressional seats, they, they flipped their county executive, county legislature, the district attorney. So Nassau County, I have good faith that they will be able to elect another Republican. But yes, it will remain a competitive uh, seat as it has in the past. You don't know what he's going to say at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Do you have, have you heard from your <laughs> colleague from New York about what this news conference is about? No, I have not heard. And I guess we'll find out. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to expel him prior to that. Wow. And what a day this is going to be. Uh, Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis of New York with us. We appreciate the time as always. Will your bill get a vote at 1.30 as we're hearing? Is that your expectation? Yeah, the, the debate will begin at 2 p.m. And, uh, and then we'll have the, the vote following that. Great to see you again, Congresswoman. Thank you for the Great. insights. Grabbing the third rail here, as they say, and that's, of course, border policy, border security and immigration reform that appears to be the center of this grand debate over funding for Israel and for Ukraine. I'm Joe Matthew in New York today. We'll call it a special edition of Sound On because we've got Rick Davis with us up here as well at World Headquarters. Bloomberg Politics contributor, iconic Republican strategist joined today by Brad Howard, Democratic strategist, former spokesperson for the Blue Dog Democrats. Great to have you both here. Thank you for joining, Brad, the conversation. And Rick, it's good to see you. Uh, here in New York, as we consider what's happening in Washington, there's a lot I could ask you about here, but I'm just going to start with George Santos because we were just talking about that with Nicole <laughs> Maliotakis. It does appear that the Republican conference is prepared to say goodbye. Yeah, I think the Republican conference, the Democratic conference, if there was an Fair. independent or a socialist conference, <laughs> they'd all be piling on on this one. Look, I mean, as as Congresswoman Maliotakis pointed out, uh, the Ethics Committee did their report, 50 pages, you know, Congressman Guest, the chairman of that committee, a searing indictment like none we've ever seen out of the uh, Ethics Committee. And that's what matters. It doesn't matter ultimately to the House um, whether or not he is prosecuted for criminal charges. That is that is not what they're going to vote on. They're going to vote on a massive uh, uh, failure uh, to uh, uh, to adhere to the ethics of the House of Representatives. It's a no-brainer. Anybody actually who votes against expulsion has to be questioned as to hmm. what they see as the standard. Mm -hmm. Democrats, I'm guessing, Brad, are going to vote to expel. I know they were having fun last time keeping George Santos around, and maybe it's a game they can <laughs> play with Republicans, but Democrats will vote to expel, right? Yeah, I think for, for you know a couple of reasons here. You've got the expulsion on, on the merits, and you know I, th I think there's... There is some, I think, credible response from uh, George Santos that, you know, that nothing's been proven in, in a court of law. And, and there is a concern about the precedent this sets. But this is such a unique and such an obvious violation of your oath of office and the trust you have with voters. And it's well documented. I mean, it, you know, it's it's you know, most people always get caught with like accounting and documents and you know, sort of tax evasion is ultimately what gets a lot of gangsters back in the day. This is a similar situation where it is a very clear and documented long uh, sets of evidence that he broke federal law and misused campaign contributions along the way. And so I think just the severity and the clear clearness of these uh, violations, you know, I think Democrats resoundingly understand that this is something that needs to be rejected and removed from the House of Representatives. But secondly, too, I mean, obviously, this is a city of politics and Democrats 
think that they can retake that seat. Tom yeah. Swazi, who was the congressman beforehand, is the clear front runner for that seat, and he will be a great member of Congress should he win in a special election. There's going to be a special and then a real election here, Rick. Is the conventional wisdom fair that Democrats flip that seat? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I don't think we have a real handle on uh, what this election cycle is going to look. So going backwards from the November elections in 2024, yeah. I think it's a jump ball whether Republicans can retain that seat and retain the House. Um, mm. You know, when you look at the uh, the generic ballot, it's pretty pretty dead even right now. So there's no real head fake that's empirical that tells you who's going to win. Now, no question, Democrats have to have a leg up on the special because of the embarrassing nature of the expulsion that Republicans are going to have to get over. So mm -hmm. if they can get over that, then they can make it a competitive district. Unbelievable stuff. Quite a moment that we're approaching here. Rick Davis with me in New York, Brad Howard in Washington. And if you're with us on YouTube, do it now. Go to YouTube, search Bloomberg Global News. Brad will keep you warm with the fireplace in his office. Well played, Brad. I'm Joe Matthew at World Headquarters in New York. We'll have a lot more ahead as we run for the border. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. As border security is debated on Capitol Hill, never mind funding Israel and Ukraine, which of course all overlap, it's a tough room today for Joe Biden. The president of the United States wakes up to hear from Jamie Dimon and Bill Ackman, both not looking forward to his reelection. Bill Ackman going even further uh, here, kind of amazing, essentially telling him that he's peaked and must drop out of the 2024 campaign. It comes against the backdrop of new numbers from Gallup. Again, tough room, poor marks for Biden, the headline Middle East economy, foreign affairs, Look at this, 37% approve, 59% disapprove, unchanged from last month's ratings, which remain in the basement. So let's reassemble our panel. Rick Davis is with us, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist, joined today by Brad Howard, Democratic strategist, former spokesperson for the Blue Dog Democrats, uh, with us today on The Fastest Show in Politics. Great to have you both here. Uh, Brad, what do you do for Joe Biden? He's asking you for your advice. He's got a list of accomplishments that he thinks should get him reelected from infrastructure to the IRA. But these numbers have been incredibly stubborn. and The situation in Israel is not helping. Yeah, before I, um, I get to the advice that I would give to the president, which, you know, uh, he doesn't call me that often, but should he? Yeah. Uh, but first, I just want uh, polling is tricky for a Democratic incumbent in general, because we have a sector of our base that's never satisfied that we go far enough. Right. And so they're always going to be a disapproving of the president's job performance because they didn't think he went liberal enough. They may be satisfied with some of the things he did, but they want more. For instance, Barack Obama in October 2011 was below where Joe Biden is today. And yet he resoundingly beat Mitt Romney a year later. So mm -hmm. there's a factor of that involved here. Am I concerned about the poll numbers? Absolutely. And what I you know, the president needs to go out and, and talk about some of these accomplishments, but not in a way that says vote for me because I've done this. Like touting your accomplishments builds trust with the voter. I said I would do this. I've done this. Now, here's what I want to do for you if you give me another term. And I think that second part of that message, the White House has yet to address. I mean, they're prepared to attack Donald Trump, who I think is going to be the Republican nominee. I think most people do. And I think in that situation, Joe Biden can and will win. But what is Joe Biden's vision for another four years? And to, to the comment that he has peaked, I think you're seeing 
Joe Biden's peak right now in his career as president. He is delivering time and again. He is passing historic pieces of legislation from infrastructure to climate change to uh, prescription drug reforms that bring prices down for seniors that no president's been able to do before. And he's also standing with our allies abroad, defending Ukraine and Israel uh, from uh, barbaric attacks from uh, you know either a terrorist group or an authoritarian regime. And I'm proud of the work he's doing in foreign policy to strengthen NATO and hold firm with our allies like Israel yeah. and Ukraine. Well, let's hear from uh, Bill Ackman then we'll get to. Speaking of peaking, here's how he put it in conversation with Bloomberg, Rick, listen. Uh, there's actually a interesting candidate who just announced his candidacy uh, on the Democratic side that I would say no one has heard of, a congressman named Dean Phillips. You, you probably have heard of him, may know him. Met with him recently. I was impressed. And I think the best, I think Biden's done a lot of good things, uh, but I think uh, he, his legacy will not be a good one if he, if he is the, the nominee. Uh, I do think the right thing for Biden to do is to step aside and to say he's not going to run and create the opportunity for some competition of alter step aside say he's not going to run i've peaked meanwhile rick jamie Dimon is urging he says even liberal democrats to back nikki haley should joe biden worry about what billionaires think no uh joe biden shouldn't give it a second thought um but he should care about what his democratic voters think and they actually echo a little bit of what bill ackman's saying uh they are not happy with his performance in office. Uh, as Brad was saying, I mean, it's a Democrat. Uh, uh, it's hard to manage a, a group of voters like that. They're very you know, different ideologically, but uh, they have an incumbent president and they're putting that at risk. That Democrats alone could lose this election. No, no help from the independents who, by the way, aren't also buying the Biden administration's case for reelection. So uh, Republicans are sort of done, right? We could like call it a day. And if the v election were held today, the Republicans will vote exactly the same way they're going to do in November, regardless of who the Republican nominee is. There's a substantial difference in how Democrats and independents see a re-election of Joe Biden, a different Democrat, or even a potential third party entrant in this. And that's the wild card that mm -hmm. this, this Biden uh, campaign has to start to deal with. And, it, and it's basically been the campaign from nowhere, right? I mean, like, where are they today? What are they doing? How are they trying to help him win these constituencies back? It's their own base that, according mm -hmm. to this Gallup poll, they don't like what he's doing in Ukraine. They don't like what he's doing in Israel. They don't like what he's doing on the economy. These are Democrats saying these things. They yeah. got to get that straight. Today, Brad, uh, Axios decided to take a look at Arab American and Muslim American anger over President Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. Interesting numbers here. They're looking at Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, all, of course, important swing states that have sizable populations of both. The Arab American Institute estimating from its own polling, about 59% of Arab American voters supported Joe Biden in 2020. It says polling indicates a dramatic decline in recent weeks, and that would uh, that would jive with what we've heard about younger voters, 18 to 34, who are upset about the loss of civilian life and Joe Biden's full-throated support for Israel. All of these, knowing how narrow divisions are and how close this election is going to be either way, all of these could be game changers. How much of a problem is this now for Joe Biden? Yeah, I mean, it is a problem. and But, you know, I would also understand polling after crises like the one we're facing in Israel is, is temporary and volatile. Uh, it always is. Uh, and and it, it will not be at this level a year from now, regardless of the situation and conflict. There may be different issues and different concerns, but you're talking, the, the debate around the, the, the war in Israel is so 
emotionally charged at the moment that you, you kind of have to let that polling, you know, uh, fizzle out and then address it in the longer term. Um, but it is a problem. But I think for all the times that Republicans accuse President Biden of not standing up to the far left elements of his party or the progressive wing of his party, which he has time and again, when you look at the legislation he's passed, this is another instance where the president is standing up to the far left elements of his party and doing what he thinks is right for the American people and for the long term national security interests of the country. And so, uh, you know, I think they're, they're, I, this is going to this is a, a, a tense moment in American politics on both sides of the aisle. And I think we'll continue to see how this plays out. He's got to do some work to build relationships and repair those relationships in the Muslim community and in the progressive community. But, you know, I, I think for before Republicans jump up and down, yeah. they're not exactly running to the president, the Republican side where Donald Trump is proposing a national right. Muslim right. ban again. Listen, so, that's a great point. A I guess it spot. becomes a story of turnout at that point. But no, these are not going to be converted uh, to the Trump base. You know success when you see it or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew at World Headquarters in New York, joined now by Kaylee Lines at Bloomberg's Bureau in Washington, D.C. Kaylee, it's great to see you. We've got what could yeah. be breaking news coming here. The latest from Israel is pretty remarkable. Uh, Kaylee, as negotiators, go for another extension here. We're in day six. Remember, we had a four-day pause or truce, depending on who's talking about it, that has led to the release of dozens of hostages. We are what, a couple of hours away uh, from what mm. would have been the end of this truce. Negotiators, including the CIA director, are in Qatar trying to see if they can push this forward once again. Yeah, there's a lot of different players in this game right now, Joe. As you say, the Biden administration, the CIA director, the, the president himself have been pushing for this brief truce to last as long as possible due to humanitarian considerations. The Qatar is involved. Egypt is involved. A lot of mediators trying to see if they can prolong this brief peace between Israel and Hamas, at least for another period of time, knowing, Joe, that while there have been dozens, as you say, hostages released over the last several days, there are still many more being held in Gaza. Gaza, though not all of them for, are being held actively by Hamas, is our understanding. Yes, right. So far, uh, if, and our numbers might sound or look a little bit different because not all of the hostages were re released by Hamas, but so far uh, the group has freed 81 hostages, mainly women and children. Israel Kaley says uh, they have freed 180 Palestinians who were uh, imprisoned. But we're, st we're still talking about an, at least, well, over 100 hostages who are left, and we don't know where they all are. 
Yeah, exactly. And a number of them uh, understood to be American as well, Joe. So there is still work to be done here. And ultimately, more humanitarian aid that needs to get in, not just hostages that need to get out. The question is whether or not another agreement can be made, knowing the longer this truce goes on, potentially the more opportunity it gives Hamas to regroup. And as we've had conversations on this show, as well as well as on balance of power, the humanitarian consideration, the consideration for the hostages may at some point run into conflict Mm -hmm. with Israel's strategic objectives, as Netanyahu still says they will go back to fighting until this is until the end, until Hamas has been eliminated. But let's start our conversation with Michael O'Hanlon, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he is director of research and foreign policy and a very reliable voice on what's happening in this part of the world. Michael, it's good to see you. Thank you. We understand negotiators are talking about potentially another two days. Is that realistic? Are you optimistic? Greetings. Well, optimism isn't really a word I allow myself to feel too much about this war at the moment because, yes, two days of additional relief would be great. But, of course, it does, as you just pointed out, beg the question of what comes next and how long whatever comes next would last and what kinds of constraints would be placed upon the use of force, how many Palestinians would suffer, how many Israelis would continue to suffer. So uh, I do think there's a distinct possibility that you could imagine if more hostages are potentially released or proposed for release, then that could certainly lead Israel to accept the burdens that Kylie just pointed out of, or, or the potential costs of giving Hamas a little more time to regroup. And you know, I'm not sure those costs are that high at this point, if Hamas has already had several mm. days, you know, almost a week, two more days may not make a big difference. Mm-hmm. So I think Israel, if it can get more hostages back, uh, probably would be inclined to do this. And Israel's probably still refining what it wants to do militarily in the southern part of Gaza in particular, where we see there's been a debate with the United States about just what kind of force to use, whether to get close to hospitals and other such facilities, whether to use certain kinds of weapons or not. And to the extent Israel is still processing all that conflicting advice, you know, advice from the Americans, advice from its own military leadership, desires to eliminate Hamas as much as possible, it may welcome a couple more days for planning. Well, you say eliminating Hamas as much as possible. How much realistically is possible? Is Netanyahu is promising to see this through until the very end? Are we looking at potentially indefinite conflict here? Well, we in the United States remember well, of course, how we felt after 9-11. And at that time, Mm. the notion of seeing any al-Qaeda fighters survive our retaliation probably would have been seen as unacceptable. But we all know that 20 years later, there's still al-Qaeda out there. Most of them, of course, are people who were not in the ranks on, on September 11th, 2001. But some of the original supporters of that organization, we never were able to find. They could just put down their guns and blend back into a population. Depending on where they were, there might or might not ever be intelligence about what they had done to implicate themselves in that original attack or other al-Qaeda activities. Hamas is the same. You know, the leadership, the top leadership, and those who crossed the border on October 7th, presumably Israel is going to work its very hardest and be willing to take some risks and pay some serious costs to get those people. But even that group of, you know, a few hundred or into a couple thousand is going to be hard to identify with complete precision and complete thoroughness. And the other 30,000-ish Hamas fighters who at one time or another have taken up weapons for the organization I think are going to be a human intelligence challenge that Israel can never figure out in terms of having any kind of basis to say who exactly is Hamas and who's not. So if you literally take the idea of 
you know, getting rid of every single Hamas fighter to its logical conclusion, you specify uh, a strategy for a war that cannot be won, cannot be successfully accomplished, and will cause certainly huge numbers of casualties along the way. Israel's going to have to scale back from that ambition. They're going to have to focus on leadership, on you know, the most lethal trigger pullers, on weapons caches, training facilities, major infrastructure, uh, major command and control capabilities, and that's going to have to be their definition of the Hamas they destroy, together with the idea of Hamas as the government for Gaza. I think most of those goals are largely within reach. We know uh, that Israel has been provided the names of another group of hostages uh, due to be freed today, but Michael, I get nervous about headlines like this one that we're seeing from Hamas and a claim that the youngest of the Israeli hostages, we've been hearing a lot about it, a 10-month-old boy uh, named Kiefer Bibas. His brother and mother, they say, are no longer alive. There was hope that those names would be in this batch provided to the Israelis today, Michael. If this turns out to be true, this is the type of headline that can change this conversation very quickly. You're right, and we obviously always want to bear in mind the very human uh, and individual you know, uh, costs of this conflict. And and any casualty is one too many. But I have to say, at a level of military and strategic analysis, I'm surprised how many hostages apparently are still alive. And I would have thought Mm. that Hamas might have been trying to deter Israel's initial airstrikes and artillery strikes by putting more of the hostages near the likely targets of those strikes. So the fact that we are still in a world where a lot of the hostages are alive to me is hopeful in, you know, it's it's a silver lining of hopefulness in what's an enormous tragedy. And there are gonna still be individual tragedies, I'm afraid, as you point out. Yeah, absolutely. And again, returning to where we began this conversation, there is effort underway to prevent potentially any tragedy from occurring for much longer, keeping the pause and fighting going, including reporting today from Bloomberg that Saudi Arabia is now in discussion with Iran about making investments into that heavily sanctioned economy in return for Iran stopping the backing of some of its proxies, avoiding this conflict spreading any further regionally. Michael, what do you think about that? Well, you know, that's the kind of hope we all have had for the Middle East for decades. That's always been dashed. You know, the idea of having a two-state solution, but otherwise good governance throughout the region that allows for people to pursue prosperity and that maybe benefits from some of the richer states investing in some of the poorer states. I mean, these are kind of the the dreams or the, the aspirations upon which a lot of Middle Eastern policy has been based for decades. But look where we are even here in 2023, where for a lot of groups, the idea of being rejectionist, the idea of impeding the progress of one's hated adversaries actually seems to matter more than the benefits of one's own future generations. What was the line? I forget, you know, the the famous adage that there's only going to be peace in the Middle East when people start loving loving their own grandchildren more than they hate their enemies and allow that prosperity, allow that investment that you just mentioned to actually happen. But unfortunately, we saw an example this past uh, October where Hamas, perhaps egged on by Iran, or perhaps just resourced more generally by Iran, didn't like the possibility of the Saudis and the Israelis getting along better, which would have facilitated investment in the region and greater economic cooperation in the region. And so they carried out the October 7th attacks precisely to prevent 
that sort of positive development. Well, well, we're compelled by it, but not only by the, the, the story is such a, a power play potentially by Saudi Arabia, but remembering where we were a couple of weeks ago, Michael, when all the talk was about a second or third front, if the minimum is achieved here and Saudi Arabia can convince uh, Iran or pay Iran to keep its proxies in check, and this remains a war largely between Israel and Hamas, is that not progress? Yes. That would be excellent. I'm just doubting whether it will happen. I got it. I'm not. I, I'm not challenging your, your your contention that it would be progress. I mean, anything that turned people more towards building a peaceful, prosperous future and away from inciting violence and tearing each other down uh, would be great. But um, you know, I don't see a lot of basis for thinking that's where Iran's heads headspace or mindset is right now. And of course, this idea of, of the, how the greater region fits in and ensuring that the conflict does not spill over into other parts of it is one of the objectives of Secretary of State Antony Blinken as he makes another trip to this region. He's made multiple since October 7th when this uh, conflict started. What happens if we don't get an extension of the truce when Blinken is there? Yeah, I don't know. Um, at least he would be there to try to remind the Israelis to use force more carefully in the next round. You know, I mean, first of all, that guy's a workhorse and I just uh, I'm astounded at how hard he's been working. Uh, but secondly, I also hope that he's got time and energy to think about not just the tactical day to day of extending a ceasefire, but also where we're headed with this. And I don't. I'm sure there are a lot of people working for him who are thinking about that question, but I think it's time to think about using some a fair amount of American leverage here to push the parties towards some kind of a durable conflict resolution strategy that they may not completely love, but that will leave the place more stable long term. What I'm basically saying is trying to work with others in the region to impose some elements of a two-state solution coming out of this rather than just wait for everyone to get to it. And I realize we can't literally impose it, but we have a lot more leverage with all parties in the region than we're often prepared to acknowledge. And I hope there's some time and attention and just you know enough energy in, in his body uh, for that kind of question to be addressable and not just these immediate questions of extending ceasefires. I want to hear uh, your reaction to something that the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said looking beyond the immediate term here we're talking about the minute to minute hour to hour situation on the ground in gaza listen to secretary of state blinken talk about the road ahead michael and we'll have you respond here he is everyone is focused on uh, the day of what's happening in gaza right now uh, but we also need to be uh, focused at the same time and we are in conversations with uh, many other countries on what i've called both the day after and the day after the day after what does the day after the day after look like, Michael, when none of Israel's neighbors will accept refugees, for instance? Well, I think that the idea of a two-stage post-conflict strategy is correct, because in the first instance, what you need to do is allow life to resume and start to create some kinds of governance structures that are not just Israel occupying Gaza, but the international community uh, and Palestinians themselves gradually entering into some kind of greater role in at least the, the you know the civilian governance of Gaza. But then longer term, I hope what he's alluding to is a two-state solution that we somehow use this terrible tragedy and crisis as a way to 
make possible what wasn't before because now at least people realize how bad things can be if we just stay stuck in negotiation paralysis as we've been for the better part of two or three decades now so the the, the day after to use his framing is presumably when the conflict stops and you start to recover the day after the day after yeah is presumably when you get to a, a maybe it's even a three-step process but you get to a long-term viable palestinian polity mm. that can avoid violence in the future and help its own people do better michael great conversation i'm really glad you could join us today let's not let too much time go by michael hanlett the brookings institution with kaylee in washington i'm joe matthew in new york this is bloomberg Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.